And uh, the rest of you, if you are not part of that children's group or the nursery, then you ought to be turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament, Luke chapter 6. And we will be looking at verses 37 through 42 today. So Luke chapter 6, beginning with a... Verse 37, we always pause for cuteness. (laughs) Well, in, uh, in 1656, The incredible and classic work, The Reformed Pastor, was first published. And um, it has nothing to do with Reformed in the sense of whether you're a Calvinist or not. It has everything to do with the fact of the pastor who is revived, the pastor who is renewed, the pastor who is Reformed. And it was, it was uh, written by Richard Baxter, who has... Some rather odd theological views, in my opinion. However, this particular work is a classic, and his understanding of practical theology literally uh, turned his community upside down. Um, Because Mr. Baxter understood, had a high regard for, um, for preaching and understood the centrality of preaching on a church service on Sunday morning and certainly didn't need, want that to be diminished. However, he also, while he understood the priority of the, the proclamation of God's word from the pulpit on Sunday morning, he also understood that as important as it was, it was also insufficient. That as important as it is, it something else needs to happen to transform lives. And so, what Richard Baxter began to do was in his church, he made sure that he went to the house of every single parishioner and sat down and catechized them. Basically, he taught them the word of God. And so every single person in his parish, he went and sat down and went through that each person would understand exactly who God is, exactly who Jesus is, what it means to be saved, who the Holy Spirit is, what it means by um, the eternal state and future things, what it means to be part of the church. He catechized or taught every single person in his church. That's what he set out to do. Not just proclaiming the gospel on Sunday mornings, but entering into people's house and teaching them individually what it means to be a disciple or what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so as we come and continue in our series on the book of Luke and specifically our series, this kind of sub-series regarding the Sermon on the Mount or sometimes regarded in the book of Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, what we see is Jesus catechizing or Jesus teaching, instructing disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? He's coming in. He's bringing some very new things. And what does it mean to follow me? He's going to call people, follow me. Well, great, I'll do that. What does that mean? I think we're still puzzled by that idea. It's like, let's become followers of Jesus. Great. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, I guess it means to go to church on Sunday and do the corporate prayer thing. And maybe go on Wednesday night. Y'all should come on Wednesday night, by the way. So it's a good discussion. <clears throat> Always trying to get a little plug in there one way or another. But, but what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And so on this, in this sermon, Jesus is describing to his disciples what it means to be a disciple. What it means to be a follower of Christ. And so we've noted that this sermon... And it is a sermon as been as being told to his disciples, not only to the twelve, a very small group, a very distinct group 
um, but a larger group of disciples and probably even perhaps those who were interested. And it's going, well, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus. I don't even know what that means. I've heard of that about him. I've seen him do some great things, but I don't know exactly what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So Jesus is now not just proclaiming. We've seen Jesus teaching in the synagogue um, and preaching in in the pulpit, if you will. But now Jesus is making sure that he goes to the people and describes to them exactly what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this particular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain, is Jesus teaching his disciples. So today, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, this message is for you. If you are interested, but not certain, not yet a disciple of Jesus Christ, and you're wondering what all the Christian thing is about, I'm glad you're here today because this message is for you. And if you have no regard for God at all and you're just here because somebody dragged you or because you felt compelled for some reason, I'm glad you're here too because we can clarify what it means to be a follower of Christ because there are all sorts of images of disciples and there are some really bad examples of Christians in the world, perhaps even maybe some of us have projected a a poor image of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But this is what we we aspire to. So today we will continue our study in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is actually the third uh, part of this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. So let me give you a little bit of a review of what it means or where we've been as Jesus describes the follower of Jesus Christ. So to be a follower of Jesus Christ, first of all, means that we recognize our poverty and trust in the Lord alone. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we discussed how poverty here, or blessed are the poor, applies. That word for poor is is used in a wide range of circumstances or has numerous usages. In other words, it doesn't It's not used exclusively for those who have economic poverty. While it's used for those who are financially impoverished, it is not used exclusively of them. In fact, it's used widely for those who realize that they are in great need, that that they have a, a deep and profound spiritual poverty, that they have nothing by which they claim any merit whatsoever before God, that they come to God and they realize that I have nothing to bring him. If I were to, if God were to love me based on something that I would have, some possession or some merit, I would be utterly and completely bankrupt. I am Poor in spirit, as Matthew puts it in this same sermon, I have nothing by which I can make a claim that God is my own. And this was in quite the contrast to some of the religious leaders of the day who would come to Jesus and say, well, look at my heritage, look at my lineage, look at my bloodline, look at all the great things that I've done, look at the good works that I've done, just as he went to the uh, the, the man asked him, um, teacher, what good work must I do to obtain the kingdom of heaven? And he said, follow the commandments. And the man said, I have done them all. In other words, this was a man who came to say, man, I've got merit on which to claim God is my father. That's not who Jesus is talking about. The follower of Christ is the one who says, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I got nothing. Will you, even though I got nothing, Accept me. Blessed are you because you to you belongs right now belongs the kingdom of heaven. This is what how Jesus begins his message for those who recognize their spiritual poverty and trust in the Lord and begin to learn that now as a kingdom citizen, one who belongs to the kingdom of God. We live a, a, a life that is reversed from the world, that even though even though as a kingdom citizen, even though I am um, called God's child, perhaps there are times when I go through hunger and poverty and weakness and and even mocked for the sake of the gospel. But that does not change my course because as a kingdom citizen, even when mocked or hungry or cold or despised, I know that my residency is in heaven and God is my father and I will endure and persevere through those trials because I am right now a kingdom citizen. This is how Jesus begins this message. And then last week we, we, we built on that a little bit, that the grand ethic 
of the kingdom citizen is love. And we described love as not just a feeling or an emotion or something that is not heart palpitations or sweaty palms or anything like that, but rather love is doing good to your neighbor. It is blessing and praying for them that love is an action. It is not simply a feeling. And this is the grand ethic. By being a, by, by bearing God's image, we will love our neighbor. We will love even our enemies. And to love like God means that we will bear the image of God. That is, we will look like our Heavenly Father. And so the follower of Christ then is one who recognizes his spiritual poverty, trusts totally in the Lord for any merit of acceptance and then goes out and bears the image of God by loving even those who despise him. This is where we've been. Here's where I hope to go by way of preview. The goal today is to at least cover two things. I hope I may cover more but maybe at least cover two things. And the first one is, I hope to clarify a widely misunderstood and certainly misapplied scripture of text. You'll recognize it when we get there. It is, it is probably the most misapplied verse in all of the Bible. And I hope to add some clarity to that. The other um, goal then today is to... <clears throat> conclude that an exclusive commitment to Jesus is necessary if we are going to be a disciple. And this is important in this day and age when people are trying to integrate. Well, I guess it's always been this way. People are trying to integrate so many other things. Well, I want to follow Jesus and. Can I bring my old non-Christian ideas into the Christian life and the Christian life requires that we separate ourselves from all that is not Christ. Christ is our one sole true leader, master, and Lord. And so to be a disciple of Christ requires the exclusivity of following Christ. So that's where I'm planning on going today. And uh, we will trust that the Lord gives us grace to touch on those two things. So if you will, um, uh, you should be in your Bible now. Luke chapter 6, verse 37 through 42. Let's uh, read God's word. Follow along with me as I read God's word. And then we will trust that he will equip us, equip me to proclaim it accurately and for us all to hear and learn and put it into practice. This is the word of God from the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 6, beginning with verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and it will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them the parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your, other, in your brother's eye. Our Father, we pray that you would give light and clarity to your word that we might not just learn it, but that we might take it to heart and put it into practice. Glorify your name this day in Christ, for Christ's sake. Amen. And so we come to this, um, this passage in the sermon where Jesus says, there, Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And before we, we, we spend some time looking at this, let me remind you of the context where we are at. I think the context is so important for us to grasp on to what Jesus is saying. And you'll recall back in the previous verses where Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to do good and to lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. And here is this um, 
this is uh, the grand ethic here is love. But under this grand ethic of love, we have these two things, these two very important characteristics for he that is God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil and then be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And so we enter this grand ethic, this umbrella, this Grand narrative of how to love one another under that grand narrative are these two elements of kindness and mercy that God is kind. That is, he fills or fulfills that which is necessary. And that he is merciful in that he withholds that which is due. And so he is... We are called to be like our Heavenly Father, not only to love our enemy, but also then to be kind, even to the ungrateful. God is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God blesses them with with health and good jobs and and, uh, good kids and all of these things. God, that is God's kindness even to ungrateful and evil men. And he's merciful. And we are commanded to be both kind like our Heavenly Father and merciful, not giving out what is due. So with that as our context, being like our Heavenly Father, we come to these four um, commands, what I will call four imperatives, because they are imperatives. And we will see that there are two negative commands and two positive Two negative, don't do these two things, but on the other hand, do do these two things. So with that kind of as the background, let's look at our first imperative. And our first imperative, everybody knows, your unbelieving friends know, the most godless neighbor, the most biblically illiterate person in all of the world knows this one. Judge not. You're not supposed to judge. Don't judge me. The Bible says judge not. And there it is. They are right. It says exactly that. <clears throat> so let's try to consider what Jesus is telling us. We want to draw out the meaning of the text. What does Jesus mean when he says judge not? Well, it seems pretty simple, except for um, we cannot live in society, if we were to live this, absol- if we were to apply this absolutely. So, as we start to look at what is Jesus saying by this phrase, judge not and you will not be judged, um, in order for us to get at what it means, let's first of all talk about what it doesn't mean. I think if we eliminate all that it isn't, we can then get down to the kernel of what it is. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about what it isn't. And the way I'm going to to um, argue for what it isn't is by allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. All right. The most the number one important rule in understanding Scripture and studying the Bible is context, context, context. All right. After that, Scripture interprets Scripture. If you know those two things when you're studying your Bible, you will do very, very well. So, we've looked at some of the context. Now, let's allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and this will help us understand what this verse isn't saying, and then we can also use those same principles to tell us what it is saying. So, first of all, judge not does not prohibit us from um, making legal decisions. Can you imagine if this verse is taken to uh, absolutely, we could not have court, a court of law. And I've heard of Christians saying, well, you know, being on a jury and saying, well, I can't really render a verdict of guilty because the Bible tells me not to judge. That's a complete misapplication of this because we see um, court cases all through the Bible where people are rendered guilty and not guilty. And so we understand that this is not an application for, this, cannot, this is not to be applied to um, civil, civil law or even legal matters. Can you imagine somebody, you're, you're in a courtroom setting and there's, I don't know, somebody who's molested a child and you say, well, we, I, who am I to judge? I can't judge that person. No, you can judge that person. You can judge what, what's right and wrong. You can say, yes, that person 
as guilty. They have committed that particular crime. Or no, they have not committed the crime. They have not, they have not done that. I can make that rendering. So this does not prohibit legal decisions, nor is it a prohibition against discernment or evaluation. In other words, the Bible all over, all over Scripture is that we are discern, to discern. Jesus constantly talks about watch out for false teachers and false Christs. Wouldn't that require discerning or evaluating or judging? Certainly it would. And in fact, Jesus goes on in, in Matthew's um, account of this sermon. He says, don't, don't cast your pearls before swine or throw your treasures to the dogs. Well, wait a second. Wouldn't this demand that you determine who's a pig and who's a dog? And in a little bit, next week, we're going to talk about um, good fruit and bad fruit. Well, it requires that we discern what's good and what's bad fruit. So discernment and evaluation is not um, uh, what Jesus is talking about because we see throughout Scripture that not only did Jesus tell us to be discerning and make evaluations, but so did all of the apostles. Paul in Galatians says, if anybody comes to you with a different gospel than the one which I preached, let him be accursed. So that means an evaluation. I evaluate that teaching and that teaching does not line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore let that person be accursed. Not just the teaching, but the individual who brings the wrong um, uh, or a perverted gospel. And so throughout Scripture, we see this idea of legal decisions and discernment and evaluating truth. From In fact, we are to divide, to, to, to understand what is truth and what is error. So that's all throughout Scripture, and we cannot apply this um, absolutely and even function. I see a red light, and it's like, ah, who are you to judge me? I'm not supposed to stop. No, we make discern, discerning judgments. So that's not what it is. So we know what it isn't. What is it? Well, one of the things we can probably do is go to um, Matthew's gospel, because Matthew records the same sermon, and he gives us some understanding. And, and I'm just going to kind of give it in, in, in a nutshell. But this idea to judge means to determine a person liable for punishment. It is an attitude then that fails to show mercy to the guilty. And one of the ways I think I like to describe it is it is it forbids exaltation by denunciation. In other words, I will exalt myself by pointing out your wickedness, because let's face it, we all judge according to our strengths, don't we? So whatever I'm good at, and you may be weak at it's like how come you can't be like me in this area? Here, here's an example. So I'm, I, I'm waiting for a meeting and somebody is late, and I think to myself, how dare that person just waste my time like this? Don't they know I'm a busy person and I got places to go and people to see and things to do? How can they not respect my time and be late like this? On the other hand, when I'm late, I think certainly that person will understand that I've been a busy person. I've got people to see and places to go and things to do. And certainly they will have mercy upon me and understand. Do you see how we judge from our, whatever our, our position is? You can do it when you're driving down the road as well. You know, somebody's slow in front of you and you're late for an appointment. Step on the gas, buddy. Don't you know? I'm an important person. I've got places to go. On the other hand, when I'm driving the speed limit, and somebody's tailgating me. I'm like, gosh, guy, what's, what's, what's the problem? Don't you know you should... Uh, what's the hurry, man? We all got time, right? So we judge, we judge things. This is just kind of some, some simple examples. But we do tend to judge from a position of strength. And this is an attitude that fails to show mercy to the, to the guilty. Notice, this is even perhaps to the guilty. And it forbids exaltation by denunciation, and perhaps maybe one of the best scriptural places that we can look is in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because the judge, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, who are you when you do the exact same thing who are you to judge the other person? And we'll be getting into a little clarity here in just a little bit when Jesus talks about taking the log out of your own eye. And so this is non-hypocritical evaluation. Non-hypocritical evaluation. So the first thing that this is not some absolute, you can never, ever make an evaluation. You can never discern. You can never make some sort of legal decision. This has to do with judging somebody as guilty, perhaps in order to exalt yourself or perhaps even when you are doing the same thing or worse. Now, one of the things that helps us understand this, this statement, judge not, is by understanding the next phrase, can, do not. And so our second imperative is condemn not. And judge not and condemn not are parallel. In other words, they are, um, um, the second line, condemn not, re, is repeating the first line and actually gives us some emphasis. And so, what does it mean to condemn? It means to find guilty and thus render a verdict. Here's what Jesus is saying by these two phrases. You are not both judge and executioner. That's just not your place. You are not judge and executioner. That person um, is guilty and damned to hell. In fact, here's where we get into our context. Remember the kindness and mercy of God. Remember how God was kind to you. When you despised him and when you hated him and when you were a blasphemer, think about how he fulfilled and gave you what you didn't deserve. That's his kindness. And remember his mercy, how he didn't give you what you did deserve. This is our our ruling ethic in this. Do not judge. You are not both judge and executioner. And one of the best ways to remember our place is to remember the kindness and mercy of God. To love even our enemies and do good to them even when they spitefully use us. Now Jesus talks about rewards for in these, in these two negative imperatives. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. So there are a couple of of, uh, of rewards for those who take heed to these commands. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be judged. And I think the idea here is that the one... Um, on the, the Bible does tell us that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So I don't think this is saying that we will bypass the judgment seat of Christ, but I do believe that it's saying that the standard of judgment and the standard of condemnation that you employ will be employed to you. And we can pick that up from Matthew's um, understanding of this, or Matthew's record of this sermon. So as one who has extended mercy, God will also extend mercy to you on the day of judgment. So when we are getting ready to judge and condemn, are we? should we ask, well, how do I want God to look at me on that great and final day. I don't know about you, but I'm going to want him to be as merciful as possible. So those are the first two imperatives, and they are negatives. Don't do this. We now get into the third imperative, which is a command to actually um, now do something, and it is to pardon or to forgive. Um, We should note a couple of things 
that this is in the present tense, and so it is an ongoing um, action. It is also an imperative, so it is not optional. So in other words, forgive and keep forgiving. Be a forgiving person. And by the way, that's not an option. All right? So be a forgiving person, and I'm making that a command. Not me, but Christ is saying, this is a command. This is what you must do, and you must do it all the time. Really? I just want to do it once, and doesn't that meet the requirement? No, it's all the time. It's an ongoing action. And to pardon a person in, in this has the idea of to loose somebody or release them from the guilt or the penalty of sin. In other words, one who has been forgiven much, that disciple needs to forgive much. Have you been forgiven much? I know I have. And so the, the imperative then is to for, be that type of person. Be a forgiving type of a person. Luke Luke loves the idea of forgiveness. It's one of the great things about his gospel. He loves the idea of forgiveness. And we'll be seeing this theme over and over again. In fact, it is Luke who is the only gospel author to record the words of Jesus from the cross that says, Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they do. Luke just loves forgiveness. He loves that concept. Don't blame him. It's a great concept. It's a great truth. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There is our standard of forgiveness. Luke also records in the book of Acts, because remember, Luke wrote wrote Acts also. Remember, under the martyrdom of Stephen? What does Stephen say just before he breathes his last breath? Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Where did he get that? He got that straight from Jesus. And Luke makes certain that both of those things get recorded. Luke loves forgiveness. This is what Jesus is teaching us about pardon or forgiveness. And of course, Matthew tells us that great parable about the individual who had been forgiven a little but was unforgiving towards somebody or who had been forgiven much but then was unforgiving towards somebody who owed him a little. And so we see these these various examples in Scripture. Um, And and here's one of the things that that I kind of wrestled with, but... This was forgiveness without repentance. In other words, the the guilty are not saying, will you forgive me? Because we see it in Scripture where, where Peter says, how often should I forgive my brother? If he repents seven times and Jesus says, no, I say to you, if he repents, if you forgive him. 70 times 7. So there, there's the element of, of repentance, but here there isn't. And when Jesus was crucified, there was no element of somebody saying, you know what, will you forgive us, Jesus? And Stephen, there was nobody asking forgiveness, but there was forgiveness offered. Here's, I, when I put those two together, we are to be forgiving people, whether people repent or not. We will lose them of that um, We will not hold that sin against them. And here's the thing. This doesn't mean they aren't guilty. This doesn't mean they have not sinned. Daryl Bach, in his very fine commentary on the Gospel of Luke, says, this is not acquittal, it's amnesty. I'm not saying the person didn't do those things. They probably did. What I'm saying is that you do not hold it against them. Oh, man. I don't know about that one. Can we just kind of get that one? out of the gospel. Well, we can't. It's there. There's a final imperative, and it is to give. That is, even when we've been treated harshly, we continue to be generous to those who are in need. Really? Even to the person who has spitefully used me. Be generous. And then Jesus goes on and says, by the standard that you apply these, these positive imperatives, you will receive. And he gives this, this illustration from the marketplace of overflowing return, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And basically, a person would go to the market and say they're going to buy some corn and say, well, I want, you know, whatever, a, a cup of corn. You probably want more than that. Give me a bucket of corn. I don't know what the proper thing is. Give me a bunch of corn. So they get the bucket, they scoop up some corn, and then they shake it, right? Let it settle, and then they press it down, and then they, they 
fill it up until it's kind of overflowing. You're like, oh, I mean, when we go get ice cream, right? That's what we want them to do, kind of push it down, right? We don't want them just to scoop it up on top and let it sit up there. We want them to kind of push it down. And, and we, we don't mind if it's overflowing. Yeah, the ice cream thing was, was me. Jesus uses the corn thing. So use Jesus' words is probably better. But we get the idea. So this illustration from the marketplace, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. How should I give? Like, and the, You should be giving generously. And this is your reward that God will give to you in abundance. I know that this is also a very misapplied verse by all of the prosperity teachers that if you give me $100, God's going to give you $1,000 or something like that. So my opinion is they should give me $100 and then trust God to give them 1000 But that's just me. General Oglethorpe once said, I never forgive and I never forget, to which John Wesley replied to him, then, sir, I hope you never sin. Because this comes straight out of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our debts as as we forgive others. I never forgive and I never forget. Then, sir, I hope you never sin. Because that's the standard. You're saying, God, judge me by the same standard that I judge others. That's a tough one. So let, let's uh, summarize where we've been for this whole sermon the past three weeks, and maybe we can create a brief summary statement. I think I put it. I think I put it up there. There it is. So followers of Jesus are those who have recognized their spiritual poverty and live an unusual life that reflects a reversal of worldly ethics. We are to love enemies, do good, be kind and merciful, because we are recipients of kindness and mercy, by not acting as judge and executioner, but as one who responds with forgiveness and generosity. Folks, this is a disciple. Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's kind of our mission statement, to be disciples who make disciples. Well, this is where, there's, there's going to be more, but this is where we're started. This is three weeks, a summary statement. Followers of Jesus have recognized their spiritual poverty. They live this unusual life that reflects reversal of worldly ethics. We are to love our enemies, do good, be kind, by not acting as judge and executioner, but as one who responds with forgiveness and generosity. Well, now, having dealt with this rather misunderstood or misapplied passage of text, I want to move on to the idea of the exclusivity of following Christ. And then it gets, Jesus then says, he tells them a parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And at this point, remember, this is under the under this big um Roman numeral three in your outline. Who do you follow? Remember, Jesus is training disciples. He's training his replacements. He's going to be crucified and go away. He's training people to take up his mission after him. And so instead of judging and condemning, we must be forgiving and giving, lest we end up being blind guides. One of the things that is challenging about this passage of text is finding, does it have any connection or does it have any bearing on what was previously taught because it seems to be very separate. And I have to admit, I wrestled with this idea. And I believe that this is a sermon. And sermons are not just a a list of proverbs, but rather there's a theme. And how does this theme of the blind leading the blind and falling into the pit, how does this have anything to do with what Jesus has just said? And I think the idea is that instead of judging and condemning, we must be forgiving and giving lest we become blind guides. And we must remove the plank in our own eye in order to give clarity to aid others. So here now we begin to see the importance of leadership. We begin to see how important a, the right leader is and specifically who are we to follow. Because here's what Jesus says. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Here's just a succinct statement regarding that. A false teacher will produce false teachers. 
A false teacher, I'm sorry, a false teacher will produce a false disciple. So we need to be very cautious about who we allow, who we are influenced by, who's teaching us. Because Jesus says, the blind can't lead the blind. Well, they can, but they end up in destruction. In fact, Jesus calls the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, you hypocrites, you blind guys. He literally calls them blind guides. And he says, you hypocrites, you go to the farthest reaches of the earth to make a proselyte. And then when you do, you make them twice the sons of hell as you, you blind guides, hypocrites. So you make a disciple. The problem is, is that they're twice the son of hell as you are. Once again, a false teacher will produce a false disciple. We need to be cautious. We need to be discerning, judging about that, those whom we call teachers. And I think one of the things that Jesus is calling and reminding us of is that the disciple who follows Jesus exclusively will be like him and will make disciples who look like him. So in other words, just like a false teacher will produce a false disciple, a teacher who is following Christ will also make a true disciple. Because Jesus makes true disciples. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Won't they both fall into the pit? And then a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be what? He will be like his teacher. And Jesus is the true teacher. In fact, in Matthew, or in John 14, 6, you know that passage of text. It says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way. I am the truth. In John 8, 12, Jesus says this, I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world. If you're going to see clearly, if the way is going to be illuminated, I'm the one who's going to illuminate the path. Then, of course, in John 10, 11 and 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd. There's all sorts of wicked shepherds. I'm the good shepherd. In other words, he's recognizing there are wicked, which we need to discern. There are wicked shepherds, hirelings, there is the good shepherd. And Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the light. We need to make sure that we understand the exclusivity of following Christ as our leader. Because the bottom line is this. We talked about this a little last week. We will continue the theme of bearing the image of God. We are image bearers and you will look like what you love. If you love Christ and follow him, you will be conformed into his image. But if you love something else and follow something else, you will end up looking like something else. Probably one of our great examples. We see this throughout the Old Testament, but let me just give you Jeremiah 5.21 as an example where it says, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see and have ears but do not hear. This is a recurring theme in the scriptures that those who follow idols become like the idols. And what characterized idols? They have eyes, but they do not see, and they have ears that they do not hear, and they have mouths and they do not speak, and they have feet, but they cannot stand. And if you follow them, you will become like them, blind, deaf, saying nothing, and easily toppled. This is just a constant warning throughout, especially throughout the Old Testament, but we don't have time for this, but Jesus picks up this theme and why he tells parables, but that's another sermon for, we don't have time for that. But. And even the disciples of the Pharisees, what happened to them? Well, we just discussed that they became twice the sons of hell as the Pharisees. So I guess in that case, they didn't become like their teachers. They became twice as bad. But followers of Jesus Followers of Jesus, what does he call them? He calls them the light of the world. Why does he call them the light of the world? Because he's the light of the world. We become like what we love. We become like what we follow. We become image bearers of the one whom we are like. So Jesus says, you will become like your teacher. Who is your teacher? If you're listening to junk, 
on radio or TV telling you all sorts of junk, stop it, okay? I don't know what else to say. Just stop it. That's the Bob Newhart theory of counseling. If you don't know, look it up. Google it. Bob Newhart and stop it. You'll laugh. But when these liars get up and say that you are little gods, they are liars. Stop listening to them. That you have a divine spark in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then you have no divine spark in you. You are dead by reason of your trespasses and sins. And if you hear some heretic saying that Jesus had to die and be born again in hell, don't listen to her. She's a liar. She's leading you astray. And you will become like her and him. Jesus is the light of the world. Exclusivity to Christ and to his word. And you are the light of the world. Why? Because you are bearing, um, you are imaging Christ. And we read um, in our text today, Samuel read it. Thank you for reading that, Samuel. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where it says, <clears throat> This, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is ultimately one day, folks. And and Romans tells us that we are being conformed into the image of his son. In other words, folks, we go all the way back to Genesis and this is is just a, a nice basic truth. We reproduce in kind. We reproduce in kind. Disciples make disciples. Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. That is our commission to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. In other words, we need to know Jesus. We need to know who he is, what he says, what he talks about. We need to understand his word. This whole Bible is the word of God. Christ has inspired it. The Holy Spirit, has, uh, God has inspired it. And we will reproduce in kind. So what are you reproducing? I pray that we be people who re- reproduce followers of Christ. And then Jesus gets into this idea of how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, this log and speck. And there's a little bit of humor here, but logs and specks, folks, it's easy to be the inspector of other people's wrongs, isn't it? I'm really good at finding how other people are wrong. Pretty good at it. Become an expert. Probably because I've practiced to my shame. See, a false teacher will seek or pretend to bring enlightenment, but the problem is they can't because their vision is dark. They have a plank and they can't see. So they cannot bring enlightenment. And I don't mean enlightenment in some Eastern mystical sense. I mean enlightenment that our eyes and our hearts are enlightened by the gospel. So in order for you to see clearly enough and make a discerning assessment you need to have clear vision. And so Jesus uses this hyperbolic statement that, or this, this extreme statement that if you, you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you've got this big log in your own eye, here's what you need to do, hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly enough to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's the thing. He's not saying don't recognize there's a speck in your brother's eye. That requires judging. He is saying you need to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Get it out. But first take care of yourself. And that big gross thing that you're doing, get yourself right. I don't believe that he's calling for sinless perfection, but deal with your own issues. We must first recognize our own fault. And so before we go and judge another person's actions, as a disciple maker, we need to make sure that those logs are out of our own lives. This requires humility. It requires humility to realize that we need to be corrected, that I need self-inspection. I need to look at my own self first. Because we are easily, we are prone to dismiss our own faults and magnify others. 
The other thing is, is when you recognize your own log, you will tend to, what? Be more merciful, going back to our grand, this big ethic of mercy and kindness. When you realize, man, I've had logs in my own eyes. I will be merciful towards, I will gently remove that speck from my brother's eye. I won't take an ice pick to him. So I'll, I'll conclude with this. <clears throat> Disciples bear the image of their teacher. As Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Disciples will bear the image of their teacher. Who, who is your teacher? Jesus is the light of the world. We are called lights of the world and we are commissioned to enlighten others by introducing them to Jesus who is the great light of the world. And here's the other thing, folks. Lights are not made to be hidden. Lights are made to be manifest. They are made to be set up on a table. They are not to be um, shrouded over. And so we, as light followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be kind, we are to be merciful, we are to be giving forgiving, we are to be generous and we are to submit wholly to Jesus and let him make us to be a shining city on a hill. So my question to you as individuals is whose image do you bear? And then as a corporate body, whose image does this church bear? We need to bear the image of Christ and be a light to this world. Let's stand and let's pray. Our Holy Father, there is none like you. And we bow before your before you, for you are great and awesome. Being like Christ is a lifelong task that will certainly not be fully completed. And yet we strive for it, knowing that one day we will be like him, as John says, because we will see him as he is. And you will have mercy upon us and you will be kind towards us. So I pray, Father God, that we would look like you, knowing that we are children of the King, that we would employ this grand ethic of love, even our enemies, that we would forgive even those who don't seek forgiveness, that we would be kind, giving, fulfilling that which is lacking, and that we would be merciful. Lord, you have a lot to do in me for these things to happen. I'm not alone. And so I pray, Father God, that as we confess this day that we have fallen far short of this incredible sermon, we pray, Lord God, that you would have mercy. But having received mercy, Lord God, I pray that we would be merciful. Help us, Father God, to employ this. Check us by the Holy Spirit when we fail, when we find ourselves going off Let your spirit, let us be sensitive to your spirit. So grant us favor this day and let us encourage one another this day as long as it is called today and let us um, be people of encouragement for Christ's sake. Amen.